Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland. This episode is a little different from our usual format as we sit down and have a chat with the marvellous Graham McTavish. Graham has had a hugely successful acting career spanning 35 years, but is perhaps best known to our listeners for his role as Dougal Mackenzie in the Outlander TV series. While filming Outlander, he struck up a great friendship with fellow actor Sam Hewen, who plays Jamie Fraser. The two released the New York Times best-selling Clanlands in 2020 and are about to release their second book together, The Clanlands Almanac, Seasonal Stories from Scotland. In this light-hearted book, the pair guide readers through each month of the year in Scotland, from first footing to whiskey lore, to Graham's favourite subject of all time, which is battles. You can grab a copy of the Clanlands Almanac on the 23rd of November. Just in time for Christmas. So let's jump in and chat with Graham. Hi, Graham. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Very nice to be here. And you go, Jenny. Thank you very much, Annie. I'm Jenny, as Annie just said. <laughs> I'm Annie, as Jenny just said. <laughs> so you're Annie, you're Jenny, and I'm Graham. We got that far. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I figured we'd just sort of have a chat about Scotland in general, the book a little bit, mythology, history, and anything else that comes up along the way. Absolutely. You, you go ahead and uh, I will uh, try and keep up. Fantastic. So I uh, I was doing the, the usual Wikipedia little Google about you <laughs> and it, it popped up that you were from Glasgow as well. Yeah. I mean, I lived, uh, I lived most of my life, most of my childhood in, um, in England and Canada. So my father um, moved around a lot. He was a pilot and uh, he just finished with the RAF when I was born. And then um, we moved, yeah, we were in the south of England. We went to Canada when I was like seven. I was there for about three years. Then I came back and then I was in England Then I went back up to Scotland. And then I went to university in London and then I went back to Scotland and then I moved to America <laughs> and now I live in New Zealand. So yeah, it's a, it's a tortured journey of, of lots of air travel. <laughs> A game of global ping pong. Yeah, yeah, and I've essentially, I've, I've essentially taken on my father's life because he was away. He was constantly traveling, and and I feel like I'm doing exactly the same. So, while my uh, my heart and um, soul is in Scotland, uh, I've definitely moved around a lot. So yeah. So were either of your parents Scottish? Yes, my my father. My father was uh, born and governed in 1922. And uh, his family, the McTavishes. So I've done a lot of research on the McTavishes, and the McTavishes go back. Highland, you know, Highland records are not so great compared with lowland ones because everything just sort of stops at a certain point. But I got back to the late 18th century, and the McTavish that I got back to, Duncan McTavish, lived in an area called Achahoish, I think it's pronounced in Argyle, which is where the McTavishes mainly come from, that region. And then his son, Alexander, moved to Edinburgh in 1830, part of the, the big sort of exodus due to the rural poverty. So many Gaelic speakers, so many Highlanders moved to Glasgow and Edinburgh. He moved there and was married two years later to a lowlander. 
And so there's a whole side of the family that all come up from Hoik and uh, uh, all the regions around there. And there's and I've managed to, with them, get back to 1590 or something. Wow. Uh, with the map. I mean, I don't know if you've done much genealogy research, but it's just once you start going into it, oh my goodness, you just it just spreads i think so quickly and uh we're probably related you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's entirely possible <laughs> is that why you've become so intrigued by scottish history and because you do so much research because you've got this family connection and especially to such an emotional part of scottish history when you start talking about the clevances yeah no i think that's i think that's true it really gripped me i think the history of my own family that is a microcosm of the history of all highland families the ones the ones that stayed in scotland because of course many of them left there was a whole village of mctavishes all of them left and went to nova scotia so that village simply doesn't exist anymore they they basically all said like went went off and they just got in the boats and that was the end of that so no i am i'm i'm very interested i find it's not that Scotland's unique. I think history, I'm interested in all history, and I try and discover the history of anywhere that I'm staying in or working in, uh, because it's fascinating, you know, American history or New Zealand history, all these, all these sort of things are very, very, very interesting. But it is when you, when you look at the tragedy of Scottish history that, that runs through it, you know, the, if you go back to the two Jacobite rebellions, or even before that, is that the constant fighting, the constant warring, um, but what that did to a national character as well, and how that propelled them forward post the Jacobite rebellion to becoming the sort of forefront of the empire building that happened throughout the 19th century. I mean, without the Scots, there would have been no British empire. They were really the bedrock of the British Empire. And they were at the forefront of everything. India, Canada, New Zealand. Now that I live in New Zealand, I mean, 20% of the population can claim Scottish ancestry. I'm constantly interested in how Scotland came to be what it is today. Absolutely. And I think if you look at the reach that your books and TV show has, along with also our podcast, they're very similar in that we have a lot of America, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, because our roots do lie so close to each other all around the world. And you don't realise that Scotland is so intertwined because it sort of sits below the surface. But then when people start to look at their family, look at their history, it all does seem to to come straight back to some small highland village. Which is just, I mean, really, when you start to think about it, it is remarkable. The strength and determination, just again, referring to my own family, you know, what they lived through, especially in the 19th century, when I was able to look at the census uh, report from 1841, you just think, good grief, the lives that they lived, it was so hard. Yeah. And they all survived. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't be here. they, They all managed to make it through. It's just astonishing. Very hard, tough people, the Scots. Very tough. I think your agent needs to set you up with who do you think you are, Graham? Oh, I'd love that. It'd be too easy for them. You just hand them everything you've got and they'd be like, oh, well, that's our 10-minute show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's always something about anybody's family history that you go, oh, my God, I had no idea. So... Talking, I guess, both about your incredible acting career and the books that you've done, 
we see a lot of themes of legend and folklore and mythology. And I just wanted to ask if there were any folklore or stories that run in your family that perhaps your grandparents or parents told you when you were little. Hmm, interesting question. I think you're correct that uh, I do seem to have fallen into a pattern. I was thinking about this the other day when I was on set, carrying yet another enormous sword, walking around in armour and uh, getting on a horse. (laughs) Um, I don't do a lot of suit performances, you know, sitting behind a desk, you know, going into a court or, you know, investigating a crime or anything like that. No, it's... And and I think it's partly, to be honest, that I am genuinely drawn to that sort of thing. You know, you sort of create your own destiny in some ways. And and I I love those stories. I always have. Yeah, the mythological kind of tales that I grew up with. It's almost like I've avoided doing anything that doesn't involve that sort of stuff. I remember there was a point when I was uh, an actor, when I was doing theatre a lot, and I used to do a Shakespeare every year, at least one, and it was just all great. But then I really came to realise, is this really what I want to be doing, you know, doing Shakespeare constantly? You know, because some actors, their ambition is to work for the Royal Shakespeare Company and the National and all of these, these sort of very, very big institutions. And I realised I didn't, you know. I wanted to do kind of exciting adventures. You know, I wanted to be in Rambo. That's the kind of thing I wanted to do. And I'm never, honestly, I'm never happier than when I'm doing that sort of stuff. It plays into really, I suppose, the very childlike nature of, of me, that I've never escaped from the child that used to play those games. I mean, we didn't play games of Shakespeare when I was 11. We played games of war and, <laughs> you know, and knights and cowboys. And that's become the pattern of my life. One of the most exciting moments of my entire life, I think, was when I was playing a cowboy and I was shooting in New Mexico and I, uh, I was on the horse. I had the duster coat, the Stetson, the guns, the sword, riding into a Western town, people on wagons and all the rest of it. And I just thought growing up in Scotland and, and England, you would never dream that this would ever happen. And it was all I could do not to just jump up and down because that's all I wanted to do uh, was to be a cowboy. And so, yeah, but as far as my childhood's concerned, I never had myths so much given to me, but I had adventure stories. I loved reading adventure stories. I loved those sort of tales. And and that's what got me into writing in the first place. When I was 11, I uh, rather pretentiously wrote my first book, um, the wonderfully titled Island of Death. Uh, can you imagine what that was about? Was it you dressed up as some sort of mythical creature in a courtroom? <laughs> no, 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 no. But there was a very, a very, very aggressive, violent unicorn in it. Love it. <laughs> yeah. So a sort of, you know, homicidal unicorn was, was in the book. So I was really into uh, adventures that just continued with the same kind of characters that you could go back to them. I mean, like, you know, Enid Blyton novels, Willard Price, these sort of people, Alistair MacLean. I grew up reading those those kind of stories, and I just loved them, and I still do. I, I have ambitions to continue writing, actually, in a more fictional way, you know, not just the kind of thing that we're doing with Clanlands and the Almanac. That would quite literally be my life ambition fulfilled, 
let's get the Island of Death published. They're clearly on the wrong track. <laughs> I do think a homicidal unicorn is the way to go with this. <laughs> it's I mean, it's going to have a big, big following. The, the Island of Death, good grief. I just remember, I reread like the first page and there's none of this wasting time with character development and... You know, let's learn about their backstory. I think they're just straight into the adventure. I mean, with a unicorn so violent, you don't really have a choice, do you? (laughs) No, that's right. You need to have your wits about you when you've got a violent unicorn on the loose. (laughs) As they all say. (laughs) That's right. It's it's words I live by. So what's your favourite aspect of Scottish history to research? Well, if I'm honest, my particular passion in the Almanac was really more the battles and the, and the feuding and the clans. That's what I was, I was interested in. I was so fascinated. I mean, I was interested in the other things too, but my fascination really was the, the clan structure, their constant need, it seems, to be fighting each other uh, at, at any, any opportunity. The way that the alliances shift in clan structure as well, that your enemy one day becomes your ally the next and you marry into that clan and then you betray them and then something terrible happens. And so, you know, if you look, I mean, I'm doing the Game of Thrones prequel at the moment. When you look at clan structure, I mean, basically you see Game of Thrones played out in real life. You know, you read those stories. There's no, no coincidence, for instance, that George R. R. Martin, uh, the Red Wedding in, in Game of Thrones was based on an event that happened in uh, in the clan structures in I can't remember which year it was, but uh, there was the uh, there was two of them. There was the the Macintoshes and I think the Camerons. They had some terrifying dinner, and then there was another one with the Douglas. There was another terrifying dinner where everyone was murdered, and that's what I find really interesting. And the fact that the Scottish clans, it didn't matter what time of year it was. I mean, there, there was no kind of season for violence it was really any time we're ready you talk now there's the fighting season in certain parts of the world where it's just too cold to fight you just take the time off not for the scots no january i'm ready to go you know there's like maybe 10 minutes of daylight in the far north of scotland and they just devoted it to fighting each other it's how they kept warm (laughs) actually it's a good point i never thought about that it's like i'm freezing Let's go and have a battle. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I'm never happier than when I'm researching and finding out about all of that sort of thing because I'm constantly surprised and shocked and appalled and sort of morbidly fascinated by what what they went through quite willingly for any slight. I mean, I can't remember, what was it? The, the McDonald's and the McLean's, I think. They started a war, a feud, when the MacDonald clan thought that the MacLeans had done something, when actually it was within their own clan. But once they found that out, it didn't matter. They just continued fighting the MacLeans. I think fighting is definitely in our blood to some extent, because when you look back to Scots all over the world, most people think it was the clearances that spread us everywhere. But a lot of it was Scottish warriors totally. just going about and fighting for whoever pays them. And I think we were we had great status all over the world for our fighting skills. It would be freezing and we'd be like, ah, come on, lads, let's go. Yes. I mean, the thin red line that people talk about, that was the 90, 93rd Highlanders at Crimea, um, led by Sir Colin Campbell, just standing there in front of, you know, several hundred Russian heavy cavalry. And uh, they just stood there and Colin Campbell said, you will fight and die here. There is no turning. And 
The sergeant went, aye, Sir Colin, we will. And that was it. They just stood there and they didn't move and they beat them. And and that, that, that story is played out over and over and over again in Scottish military history, for sure. You know, they turned battles. They, you know, I was telling um, this at the event we had the other day. Peter Jackson did a documentary about the First World War, They Shall Not Grow Old, which is rather marvelous. And one of the things he told me when he was making it in, in his research was that the Germans would be in the trenches opposite the Allies and they would rotate every two weeks. A new lot would come in on either side. And the Germans would call across to the Allies and say, listen, you know, we're from Saxony, say. Uh, listen, next week, you've got the Prussians coming in. So just a word of warning, they're really bad. They're really terrible. They do awful things. So just wanted to let you know. It was a kind of a friendly gesture, weirdly. And so the Allies in the trench would report back to the high command and say, the Prussians are coming next week. And the Allies would replace that group by the, by the Highlanders because they knew that they were then putting in place somebody as equally nutty and insane and violent as the Prussians. So the, the Highlanders were traditionally used for that kind of purpose, you know, shock troops that never give up. And do you feel like you get to engage with your ancient warrior spirit when you get to take on acting roles yes. that give you sword or axe or training? I do. I know, it's true. You you do feel it. I had a great time, you know, an outlander playing Dougal Mackenzie. And how extensive is the training that they give you with old-fashioned weaponry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've done a lot of it. So, <laughs> yes, I've done a lot of sword fighting particularly. And so I'm I'm not bad at that. And I know what I'm doing. But I love, I love the training. I really do. Okay, so let's just say it's you with a real sword versus a homicidal unicorn. Who's going to win? Oh, me, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> All right, these are big words. Especially with a Highland broadsword. You can do some real damage. <laughs> and if you get up close with the dirk, just straight in. Boom. Oh, yeah. The, the unicorn would stand a chance. But basically, it's just got the horn. It's just got the horn at the front. And, you know, all you need to do is get behind it. Yeah, the horn and no empathy. Well, exactly. And, and really no forward planning either. No, no strategy. Well, I would pay to watch that one too. <laughs> <laughs> so we're so excited that it's an almanac that you're releasing. Yes. Because as we've mentioned, a few countries feel the changing of the seasons, like Scotland with the the summer rain and the winter snow. Quiet. <laughs> so we thought we'd ask about how you relate to the different Scottish seasons and festivities. So what's your favourite time of year in Scotland? Oh, yeah, my favourite time of year, I would say really, I mean, I do like it at any time of the year. You know, I was up there just last weekend and, and it's it's beautiful, especially if the weather's clear and crisp and you can walk around and it's just delightful, the colours. I think... Probably May, June, and September, October are my favorites. I, I'm, I'm a spring and autumn kind of a, a guy. You know, just before the summer begins and just after the summer's over. I'm not, summer is not my favorite season in Scotland, but I love it. I love the, I love the promise of the summer with the spring, uh, with it coming, you know, emerging from the dark. And I like the, uh, the color changes as well in the autumn and often... I've been in Scotland many times in October and it's been the best time of the year. It's been wonderful. 
just before with the clocks go back and we're all plunged into eternal darkness, which builds our character. You know, once you, get, <laughs> you know, January and February sort out the weak from the strong in Scotland, you know, those that emerge in March, you know, they're, they're just that little bit tougher for the experience of January and February. <laughs> <laughs> they are. I would, I would be worried if someone told me their favourite time of year in Scotland was January or February. I'd be like, all right. I know, they'd just be masochists. Something a little off here. <laughs> As the summer, I think, for me, it's the midges. Even if it is nice, you can't even really enjoy it because you're getting eaten alive. No, no, I know. Well, weirdly enough, because we had this experience on Men in Kills, I've never properly understood this before, but midges don't seem to like me or they're not bothered about me. Uh, but Sam Hewan, they feasted on him. It was awful to witness this sort of big, strong man reduced to a gibbering wreck, <laughs> having to wear a midge net over his head. They just really enjoyed his portrayal of Jamie. They were just mega fans. They were. <laughs> Sam, we love you. We love you, Sam. <laughs> Don't go. Come back. <laughs> yeah, they, they, uh, they really did love him. He would be attacked while we were inside the camper van. And much to my amusement. It's quite nice when you have someone with you who the midges are attracted to because you're free to roam. They take the hit. Yeah, they, they literally didn't bother me at all. I would get the occasional one that might settle on me, but I don't think I really got bitten. It's something to do with your blood type, apparently. Mm. They're att attracted to, and weakness, obviously. They're attracted to Sam's weakness. <laughs> so uh, that's the other thing we need to bear in mind. <laughs> Very picky midges. Who would win in a fight, Sam with a sword or a homicidal unicorn? Uh, you see, I think then the unicorn might do it. <laughs> I just think there would be that moment where he would furrow his brow and, and sort of look steely at the unicorn, and that would be the moment the unicorn would just get him. <laughs> he, would, he would take that fatal moment of, I'm going to look really good in this fight, and then bang, the unicorn's got him. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe, yeah, he's a pretty good fighter, though, Sam. He's a pretty good fighter. He knows what he's doing. It does sound like a lot of fun learning how to fight. Annie, I think we should take a lesson in sword fighting. It's fantastic. It's great fun. It is. It really is great fun. So if we head back to the seasons, we've just had Halloween here or Samhain, which is such a poignant time of year. Everyone is aware of the seasons changing and sort of the veil between the worlds thinning as well, I think. Yeah. And there's no clearer way to see that than all the little bairns running around the streets in their costumes. Guising. Did you ever go guising when you were younger, wherever you were growing up? It wasn't really a thing when I was growing up until I moved to Canada. And then when I moved to Canada, there was this whole Halloween going out trick-or-treating thing. And I couldn't believe it. I was seven when I moved there. And, you know, I was just told, oh, yes, you go out. You take a pillowcase and you dress up and they give you sweets. And I'm like, what? Yeah, you just go to every door, knock on the door and say trick or treat and they'll give you sweets. And I couldn't believe it. It was just one of the best nights of my life. We would just roam the streets in our costumes. I was a skeleton, I remember. And uh, have uh, an absolutely wonderful time. So I was kind of starved of Halloween until I was seven. I don't know why. Maybe it was my parents. I mean, we didn't have any pets either, so maybe it's all connected. <laughs> no, that's, that, that's a bit too joyful. <laughs> I mean, you have to bear in mind that my father's grandfather was, um, what are they called, the, the Plymouth Brethren. Have you heard of the Plymouth Brethren? I have not. Annie, have you? 
No, I've not. No. They're so hardcore. My grandfather grew up in a house where on a Sunday, all the curtains were drawn and they would stay indoors and just read the Bible. That was it. So I think that is connected with my lack of Halloween. What about Christmas? Was that celebrated? It was. But you have to remember that when my dad was growing up, for instance, Christmas wasn't even a national holiday in Scotland. You know, New Year, Hogmanay was was the one. That's when they got the time off. So my dad worked every Christmas when he was younger. So, But it was a big thing in our house, yeah. Christmas was great. And the thing that I always remember about Christmas was, and I still do it to my kids, is we always had an orange at the bottom of the stocking. He would give us an orange because they were so valuable and rare. Mm. And Brazil nuts as well. And then you'd have little toys or whatever. But um, no, Christmas has always been a very, very important part of my life. I, I love it. Absolutely love it. And I always go all out when I celebrate Christmas. And do you have any traditional Scots food in your Christmas dinner? <laughs> Smoked salmon starter. Got to have that. That's classic. I make my own Christmas pudding, but that's a Delia Smith recipe from the 1970s. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't really count as scones. No, I've got to say I slightly let down the side with the Christmas dinner. It's very, it's turkey, it's parsnips, it's the roast potatoes, it's the gravy, the stuffing, the whole nine yards. And a wee dram. Oh, yes. To remind yourself of the homeland. Yeah, that's why my dad and I always used to have that. He would do his toast. Here's to us, well, like us guy few in the raw deed that he would do every opportunity. <laughs> and I've always loved it. I do it all the time as well. I do. I remember doing it in America once, that toast. And I was at the table and I made this toast. And of course, none of them could understand what it meant. So I translated it to them. And they just thought, you're all dead. They thought this was horrific. <laughs> this was some kind of morbid celebration of death. And uh, anyway, that's America. So what can you do? <laughs> and so when you were researching this book, what was what was different from the way you wrote it to the first Clanlands that you guys did? Well, I mean, to be honest, our, our method was similar because we uh, Sam's very competitive, and I'm quite I am competitive. It's like a sort of duel. The kind word would be a conversation, you know, possibly the correct word would be an argument. So he writes something, I disagree with it. Uh, we're on a shared Google document, and sometimes I can literally see him writing, and then I can respond immediately. So it's like a sort of very long, drawn-out row, almost, Yeah. Um, in book form. I mean, it's not a row, but it's a, we have different perspectives on shared experiences. And then we go off and we do our own mm-hmm. things like battles. You know, that was my kind of thing. His was more the whole Monroe, the whiskey and all of that sort of stuff. That, so that was where he was involved personally, where I wasn't interfering. Yeah. But yeah, it's a conversation. They're, but they're both conversations. Uh, but one takes the form of, a, of an almanac and the other has a much more linear structure. But I love the almanac as a structure. I think it's great. You can just dip in and out of it. You don't need to start in January. You can start whenever you want. And you can go back to whatever you want, a particularly favorite month. It's the kind of thing you would, you know, have by your bed, have in the bathroom or wherever. And you just dip into it. And I've always loved those kind of books. 
That's brilliant. With the shared Google Drive, did you ever get it? So Annie and I do the same thing. That's how we write. But um, often I'll write something and I'll just see like Annie just deleting it as it goes. Oh, yes. That's not going in. Yes, yes that's right. The deleting. The deleting. What the hell are you doing? Yes, absolutely. The deleting. I remember that. You just reminded me of it. Watching, watching the little space going backwards. Good grief. <laughs> Yeah, I think having a writing partner as well is really great. You sort of push each other. Yeah, I do too. The competitive nature yeah. can almost, it, it helps bring out the best in both. Well, yeah, and can bounce ideas off each other. I, I wrote a play in the 80s with an actor friend of mine, and uh, it, was, it was the same process. We would write things. In those days, we didn't have computers, so we would submit to each other our thoughts and edit each other's work, and that's what ended up being actually a much better play than it would have been if either one of us had just written it on our own, I think. And so did you travel around Scotland for this one as well? Or was this one much more sort of research based? No, we, I mean, some of it really refers to our experience filming Men in Kilts, especially the competitive stuff. Each month there is um, the description of a competition that Sam and I had. Although some some things that Sam thought he was competing over, I had no idea he was actually competing. I just thought we were experiencing it. <laughs> um, you know, like Kaylee dancing. I mean, how can you compete at Kaylee dancing? You know, that's really taking things to a ridiculous level. There's always someone who spins as hard as they physically can. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> The Kaylee dancing apparently was a competition, which I didn't realise. It was a great, great process writing that book together. The whole form of it, the almanac and everything like that, I just, uh, I loved it. So, if you were to have a dinner party with four guests from either Scottish history or mythology, Mm. and you can't choose your unicorn, (laughs) who do you pick? And where would you have your party? Oh gosh, okay. Four people. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, the kind of people I would choose, it could end up in a bit of a, could be a bad evening. <laughs> Just thinking, I'd want William Wallace. I mean, you'd have to have William Wallace, wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, it just would not be a dull night with William Wallace at the table. Mm-hmm. Who else uh, in Scottish history? Maybe Mary Queen of Scots. She'd be a good guest. There'd be a lot of spirited debate going on. Mm-hmm. A lot of spirited debate. Um, there was a guy called... Archibald MacPhail, who is not mentioned in either of the books, actually, but just a legendary Scottish Highlander, enormous man, huge, that would do the most outrageous things. Stormed Kilchurn Castle, single-handedly smashed the door down to get inside. You're getting the the idea of what the dinner would be like. Mm -hmm. It would be lots of, you know, you call that a battle? Maybe somebody a bit more intellectual who would, well, burns, burns. He'd bring more humour to the evening and he'd probably calm people down. Yeah. So Burns, Mary Queen of Scots, Archibald MacPhail and William Wallace. Archibald MacPhail and William Wallace, you'd have to have them at um, opposite ends of the table, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Mary, Mary and Rabbi would just be on either side. I can picture it now. We just have to keep an eye on the drink. That would be the thing. I just imagine that the Wallace, you know, once he gets a few drinks inside him, things get a bit, you know, they get a bit Sterling Bridge. <laughs> you have to have the rule of leave your weapons at the door. <laughs> Definitely leave your, but I don't think that would even matter to these people. They would just find a weapon on the table, you know. <laughs> but it would make for a lively night. 
It sounds like a tremendous crowd. I think it'd be really nice to just end on a couple of questions that loop back to the start of the episode when you're talking about doing your own family history. So since you're part of Outlander, which is, of course, time-traveling drama, if you could go back in time and ask any of your ancestors any question, what would you ask them or what would you want to know about their lives? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I used to I used to think, oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to go back to the 16th century or wouldn't it, wouldn't it be fabulous to go back to even earlier than that? But it, it, if I'm honest, I would actually want to go back to see my dad. I would want to spend some time with my dad and ask him questions because, uh, you know, one thing about having a father that was, well, my, my grandparents were Victorians, so there was a reticence in talking about stuff. You know, I mean, he went through the Second World War, my dad, and the circumstances through which he met my mother, uh, they were both engaged to different people when they met. And uh, they were married six months later. And, and I would love to sit down with him and ask him about what it was like before any of his children came along. What was life like for him? I mean, I know some little tiny bits, but to really sit down with my dad for uh, an evening, a long night, talking about his life, I would love that. I did it with my mother before she died, mm-hmm. and I recorded it, but I never got the opportunity to do it with my dad, and I would love to do that. Mm-hmm. That's quite beautiful, really, mm-hmm. I think, just mm-hmm. speaking to your father. Yeah, yeah. On the other side of that, so... If you could put a message in the bottle for the future, it could be a wish for the world, it could be a piece of advice, anything. If you could give a message to the future, what would it be? Boy, wow. Watch out for the unicorn. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) They're not all friendly, you know. Um, (laughs) A message for the future. I think learn your history. Learn your history. Remember your history. Uh, Learn from it so that it arms you for the future. Because uh, I think not enough of us either know our history or if we do know our history, learn from it. And and I think, you know, that, that doesn't need to apply to people from Scotland. It can be anywhere. I think it's terribly important that you you pass on your history to your family and you learn the history from the the family that has preceded you. Absolutely. The almanac is a fantastic way of doing that. I think oral history was huge in Scotland. It still is. Absolutely. But now with the written word as well, you can be like, learn your history, and you can start with this handy almanac of Scotland. (laughs) Yes, yes. Available in local bookshops. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're right, oral history. Uh, We had a wonderful guest on Men in Kilts who didn't make it into the show. It was was no reflection on him. But he's a wonderful Scottish storyteller, Parag. Mm -hmm. Wonderful man. And he carries around in his head 500 Scottish stories. Wow. And every one of them, it's just a delight to listen to him. Amazing stuff. So, yeah. No, Scottish storytelling is fantastic. And I think that's what all of us do to some extent. We're just retelling stories, trying to learn from them and pass them on. Yeah. While also just exploring Scotland and its beautiful history. Yes. As I think we talked about in uh, Men in Kilt and Clanlands, but that idea of if, if you were in battle as a Highlander, they would the bard would recite the incitement to war. Mm-hmm. And the incitement to war involved 
the list of the people that had gone before you and their achievements, and so that you would actually be charging with an army of the dead. So that connection with the past, really great storytelling, such a skill. It's, it's better than a film, it really is. I mean, you, you're in a room with other people and you get completely drawn in by this person's voice and the story they're telling. And uh, especially if it's a true story, but it doesn't really matter if it's true. Thank you so much for speaking to us today. No, it's a pleasure. It has been absolutely intriguing. Just a quick thanks to our sponsors of this episode, Scotland Shop. Scotland Shop make beautiful tartan clothing with a story behind every product. And your tartan garments can be custom made to fit your body shape. While based in the borders, their tartans are available worldwide. Follow the link in the episode description and see their wide range of tailored tartan clothing and fabrics. There are over 500 clan tartans to choose from. 500! And you can make a virtual appointment for some personal service from the comfort of your own sofa. Your own sofa! Jenny, I think you'd look great in one of their tailored suits. I agree, Annie. I'll head over to Scotland Shop via the link in the episode description after the show. Again, a massive thanks to Graham for having a chat with us. If you are new to us, then why not have a scroll through our episodes and listen to a few that catch your fancy. And if you enjoyed this interview, then keep your eyes peeled over the next few days. Annie and I have been very busy. Part of this busyness is, you may have noticed, that we've got a new logo. We are in love with our new Cyanotype logo. It's so cool and beautiful. And so a huge thank you to the fantastic artist, Kerry Douglas, for making it for us. You can check out her other great work on Instagram. Her handle is at Tufty, that's T-U-F-F-T-A-Y. Or you can find her through our Instagram page and we'll pop her in the episode description as well. Yes, we absolutely adore our new podcast artwork. And it may just be a wee bothy in the mountains, but... Harry really made our dream bothy in our dream mountains come true. <laughs> if you're interested in some tartan, just like Jenny, then please do check out our sponsors, Scotland Shop, as this helps support us too. And you can also join our Patreon and get access to loads more amazing Scottish storytelling content. Jenny has just put up an intriguing goat man story. Meh. Until next time, my friends, Slangeva. Slangeva. And Annie, I'd say it was more a for the goat man. <laughs> <laughs> we usually end an episode with a Slangeva. So could you g- give your best toast for our audience, your best Slangeva? Slangeva.